0: What's going on this is another edition of the voice of the nets podcast i'm chris carino today a very special guest with us an actual academy award nominated director shaka king is going to join us here in a moment but first i just wanted to take a moment to give my own little acceptance speech here and thank some important people in my life i was lucky enough last week to be awarded with a uh, something called the Values of the Game Award from the NBA. I was in Miami doing the Nets Heat and uh, was tricked into staying another day in Miami. My family was down, and I got duped into attending the, the sales and marketing meeting, just kind of crashing the meeting late in the afternoon, and then was completely shocked when I was recognized with the Values of the Game Award. And I am incredibly honored to accept an award that is described as uh, recognizing an individual at an NBA team who exemplifies the values of the league in their community. And I know it's a combination of my 30 years with the Nets and the achievements there. And and while I am challenged with FSHD muscular dystrophy and the work we've done with the Chris Carino Foundation for FSHD. And um, I, I say I was tricked because Joe Cuomo, the Nets uh, traveling secretary, equipment manager. He knew my family it was coming down, which unbeknownst to me was also a ruse. They, they were coming down. They thought just to spend a weekend in Miami and it turned out they knew all along I was getting this award and they wanted to be there. And, and Joe said, why don't you spend an extra night? I've got a comp room at the Fountain Blue. And there we go. And then Georgia McGurk, who's the assistant to Nets CEO, Sam Zussman, reached out to me and said, hey, Sam's going to be in Miami too. Would love to meet you when he has a break from these sales and marketing meetings. Why don't you come and, and, you know, he he wanted to just get to know you a little bit more, come and have a a meeting with him, which, you know, I did. And that's the reason I thought I was going over here. And then he he said to me, hey, there's a guest speaker about to speak in the meeting. I think you'd enjoy it. Why don't you come in? And that got me into the room. And then I was going to leave. It was over. They start giving out like sales and marketing awards, and I said, I, "I don't know if I'm supposed to be here." You know, Sam, I think I'm just gonna gonna scoot out of here. He's like, "No, no, no." You know, Chris, we have a lot of you know. There were about 15 net people there. He's like, "One of our people is getting an award, and I and I think it would be great if you were here for that." And I said, "All right, great." You know, I'm a team guy. I wanna I wanna see who this is. And it wasn't until this moment where they start to give out this Values of the Game award, and Deputy Commissioner of the NBA Mark Tatum is there, and and, and Adam Silver's on the stage, and and they start talking about the award and they they go this person uh, you know hasn't let a disability stop him and my first thought is i'm looking around the room going wow there's somebody else here with a disability and i wonder who it is i'd like to meet this person and then all of a sudden i see my name and and my face goes up on the screen and i and i just i welled up i, I couldn't believe it and i turned to sam Dawson and i said you sandbagged me here you you know i all of a sudden it was like you know uh Kaiser Sose, which Chaz Palminteri, all of a sudden he starts to put it all together of what had been going on and all these people who had conspired to get me here. And then my, my next thought was, where is Laura, my wife? Where is my son Christopher? Where is Capper, Tim Capstraw? And then they announced that they were all in the room and they came up onto the stage to join me in getting the award and I was blown away blown away by it. So I wanted to take this moment to thank the NBA, to thank everybody at my NBA family and the Nets for putting it together. Our marketing team led by Andrew Carson and our PR team, Rachel Lewis, Mandy Gutman, who was was not with the Nets anymore, but at the time put this all together. Our content crew and Charlie Widows and his group of video guys who, who, unbeknownst to me, were making this video while we were on the road that week, interviewing Tim Capstraw, who was featured in the video, Tony Eaton, Jason Angoy were on the road to film that, and my guy Josh Nee, who put it all together, this beautiful piece that they actually showed at the event, Thank you to everybody who was involved, Uh, Mary Beth and our HR, Mary Beth Gennard, who uh, later on I see all these emails that were being sent around uh, and all this was going on for like a week and I had no idea about it. Uh, Aaron Harris, our PR director knew about it as well. And I just wanna thank everybody for not only doing it all and keeping it a secret because there's few times in life when you're genuinely surprised and shocked and honored at something and and that's what this all was. Um, The thing about it for me more so than, than getting an award is the recognition. You know, when you live with a disability, it can be lonely and difficult. And, you know, the rigors of the job over 30 years and representing the Nets and, and putting together the radio broadcasts and being the, the radio voice of the Nets, it has its challenges for anyone, especially for someone with a disability. And I've always just wanted to just put my head down, do my job to the best I can. And hopefully then good things come of it. Like you're an example for people and, and you you know, people out there in the FSHD community and the disabled community or anyone going through challenges sees you as an example of how they can live out their dreams. But it takes a village. It takes help from so many people. And what I was glad, what I really am honored by with this award is that it's recognition that you are seen that you're seen for what you do. And not just me, but the people in my life who see me at my most vulnerable, who are with me in the trenches every single day, especially my wife, Laura, to be up there on the stage with me. And my son, Christopher, who you know, has, has had to do things for me and see things that I have to go through. that I never, You never want your kids to have to do that, but he does it. And then when I'm on the road and, and, and when I'm at work, what Tim Capstraw does for me, For over two decades, I was just honored that they were on the stage with me. And it's just a message. You know, 12 year old me would be ecstatic about what I have been able to do and live out the dreams. That was it. You know, I've done it. But the way I had to get there was a little more challenging than I ever thought. And I think that's important for people to realize that you're going to go through tough times in your life, you're going to go through challenges. But keep your eye on what it is that you want to do. Be a good person to people along the way. And you will have the help you need to get there. And that's what I feel is the values of the Game Award and what it represents and, and why I'm honored to receive it. And I'm honored and I accept it for, on behalf of everybody in, in my life who helps me and and the people with FSHD and the work we're trying to do with the Chris Carino Foundation for FSHD. So that is my kind of acceptance speech, which leads us into our guest today, who was able to give some acceptance speeches and some uh, awards for his movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. It was nominated for an Academy Award. Shaka King was also nominated for his work as director. At I was so excited to have him on this podcast because I am a, I'm a movie nerd and we're going to talk a lot about his movie. We're going to talk about filmmaking in general, movies, his influences, his career, a Bed-Stuy native, still lives in the neighborhood, a Brooklyn Nets season ticket holder. I'm going to find out what he thought originally of the idea of Barclays Center being constructed there in Brooklyn and, uh, and, and how a Knick fan converted to be a Net fan. All that coming up with Shaka King right here on The Voice of the Nets. Academy Award nominated director Shaka King coming to us from His home in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, where he was born and raised part of the 10 creators uh, revolving around the 10th anniversary of Barclays Center. It's so great to talk to you, Shaka. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I'm going to geek out with you about Judas and the Black Messiah a little later on, some film stuff. I'm going to nerd out because that's what I do. And I love that stuff. Uh, just though, I want to, I want to get into your background in Brooklyn and, and Barclays center and the 10th anniversary of uh, a part of the creator series. I, it, it, it's gotta be something that you look back on nostalgically and say, man, I'm a kid from Bed-Stuy growing up in Brooklyn. And now here's this arena that's been here 10 years and they're going to honor me as one of the 10 creators I mean, your knowing your connection to Brooklyn, that's got to be a great honor
1: for you. It is. It's. I've had a very complicated relationship with uh, the Brooklyn Nets and Barclays Center.
0: Yeah, like I guess when the arena was going up, you weren't necessarily on board. No, definitely not. Um, yeah,
1: and I also, you know, was grew up a Nick fan. Um, so that's okay. You know, a I, lot of people were. You know, I was a <laughs> I was a I was a, a Nick fan actually until. You know, they led Charles Oakley out of MSG in handcuffs and that at that point. That was I off. was without a team for a bit. Um <laughs> and then, you know, I went to some Nets games. Uh and that was, you know, that like Dinwiddie, you mm-hmm. know, Karis Levert, uh, Jared Allen team, um,
0: D'Angelo I really Russell. liked that team. Yeah, I
1: really liked D'Angelo Russ. But before yeah. I think before yeah, D'Angelo Russ. That's right. D'Lo was there then. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really enjoyed. I liked, I liked how they. I just liked they felt like a team. And I, and I'd also, you know, before that, because I, I, you know, I had friends who had businesses that got affected by the stadium getting built. You know, they lost their to relocate. They didn't lose them, but they had to relocate, and you know, just. Traffic between Bed-Stuy and Fort Greene was going to be a whole nother ball of wax. And, you know, I knew that just, you know, it was going to accelerate even further the gentrification that was already taking place in Bed-Stuy. So I was really against it. Um, But then I remember the first event I went to there was Bernard Hopkins fight. And I remember going inside there and I just saw so many people from so many different experiences I've had in Brooklyn. I saw people I knew from my childhood. I saw people from my neighborhood. I saw people from high school. And I was like, this is, I've never, I've been in the garden a million times. I've never run anybody out of the garden, you know? Yeah. Um, and it just felt like like Brooklyn was really in there. And... You know, subsequently I went to a few more things. I think like a Kanye tour like the Kanye tour or something, and it's just the same experience and I and so I you know, eventually I remember after um I think after I think it was after it was clear that they were going to like rejigger things, the, the Nets were going to rejigger things, you know, roster wise and bring in some big free agents. something told me, it was me and my, my man, Joe, shout out my man, Joe Vladica, who, uh, <laughs> is the reason that I have season tickets now. Um, you know, we were like, we went to film school together. This is my, my friend who was, and he's a director as well. Um, and, you know, we were just like, I don't know. I feel like they're going to get somebody big, you know, they're probably going to get somebody big. And when they do get somebody big, it's probably going to be like way more money to get to, to get season <laughs> tickets, you know? So, so it was like a good like, investment at the time. Yeah, it yeah. just felt like a good investment. And um, we went there and we took the tour and, you know, we were thinking like, cause we have really, we get, we have like amazing seats, he and I. Um, that, are ch- that are like relatively cheap compared to like the seat next to us. Where do you, you say know, it? it's like we got? It's like the. It's, I guess it's technically considered the first row. It's the first row that's not courtside. Yeah, so, so like it's in, like, the,
0: in the in the permanent seats kind of thing. Instead yeah, of the folding chairs.
1: Are yeah, you are exactly. you across, across the, the bench? Sure. Yeah. Well, what's great you? is that we're we're across the the um the uh, opposing team's bench. Okay. On the other side, and but we have the whole. Like in front of us, there's no, there's just like a, a path, a pathway. So we have crazy legroom, <laughs> right? Crazy legroom, which you know is hard to come by in any stadium. You're a tall guy, right? You're a tall yeah, guy. Yeah. About six, six, three. Yeah. And, and then because we're not, we're not at half court, we're like a little bit to the right of half court. Like at half court, it's like two, three times what we pay. You know, I, I, the, the guys I know in sales will tell you that's
0: a, that's a great value seat. Yeah. We have just to say, like, the guys in the first row are paying any state, they're paying thousands and thousands of dollars. You just go a couple of rows back, it's like 20% 20 of the price. So, yeah, it's it's a a a great value, great
1: seat. That's a great seat. And then, you know, they went and got KD, and we, we, we were proven right, and it's been an interesting ride. Like, you had Apple stock like exactly. in eighty five, exactly. You know? yeah. All my <laughs> friends, when that trade happened, when they, my phone blew, blew up. They were like, you did it. You, you were right, holy shit. Like, you know. <laughs> and it's funny
0: because I always felt that if that team that you described earlier um, with Karis and Jared and those guys, I mean, eventually those pieces were used to, to be where they are now, um, but people really fell in love with that team. And I always thought if, if that was the kind of team that it started in Brooklyn, like when they first got there, you know, the team that started in Brooklyn, it kind of underachieved a little bit. Darren Williams, you know, they never really, yeah, they never yeah. really reached the level where they should. And I always felt like if it was that, that DLO team, that wasn't necessarily a championship team. It was going to, changes are going to have to be made, but boy, people loved the way they showed up every night.
1: Yeah. And that's yeah. really
0: what, what it's like to get people into that building in Brooklyn. They want a team that's showing up every night. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What exactly. do you think?
0: Yeah. What, what about you the, when you see when when your, your chances of now being there courtside and watching Kevin Durant, watching Kyrie Irving um, and this group, the way they've kind of come together this year now? I mean, as we're recording this, unfortunately, Kevin just went down with an injury and we hope it's not going to keep him out a long time. But um, and everything, you know, it, it's got to feel good for a season ticket holder. You get a really good show every night, and it's a really fun team to watch right now. I
1: prayed for this uh, <laughs> this season. You know, it was rough the last couple seasons, just because you want to see a competitive game. Yeah. You know, I love the game. So, like, I'm going just to watch. I, You know, I, I never imagined being able to have that vantage point of watching professional basketball. Like I just never envisioned that for myself and to be able to do that, it changes everything. And I, I mean, I I was a person who, I'm, I am a person who watches the game on TV all the time, you know? So when you can see it, you know, from those dimensions, it's amazing. And and when like guys enjoying playing when guys are like really enjoying playing and really talented, there's nothing like it. It's just like, and crazy improvisation and, you know, synchronicity and all these things. It's just, it really is a true art form.
0: Yeah. And I feel like all artists want to be athletes. Athletes want to be artists a lot of times. I know you grew up and, you know, you say being able to sit there courtside watching games, maybe thinking back as a kid, would you ever have that opportunity, especially in Brooklyn? as you're growing up in Bed-Stuy, I, I know your parents were artistic. Um, you grew up in that environment too. What was your? What was the thing that made you fall in love though with the game and basketball?
1: It was just around me my whole life. Yeah. You know, my friends on my block were really good and they played all the time and we played all the time. That was just the game, you know, we played that in football, but basketball more so I mean, we used to play. We used to get like the recycling cans, like. I remember when we got, you know, when New York City started cycling and we just would take the, the the blue cans and we'd hang them on a fence and we'd get the little mini bowls, you get a great adventure. And we would just be playing on those like all for like six hours, man. Dunking on each park. other. You didn't, didn't even need, to need a park. Dog. This is like pre, you know, this is like when we kind of played on the block more yeah. We thought we, we graduated to the park a little bit later this is like really really uh, planned just like on garbage cans you know um or you know the door hanger you know uh, not sorry not the door hanger the door uh the door hinge yeah you know and the, with a balled up sock you know what i mean like that yeah that was like we just grew up around it it, it, it was a you know just like who a street was, activity who was your guy like you, you were you probably were a nick fan as a kid young who was your guy my favorite player growing up is crazy. I was a Knicks fan, but my favorite player growing up was Reggie Miller. <laughs> wow. How did that like, that seemed like it's not it couldn't even be
0: real? How could that be? How could because you like Reggie was, Miller as a Knicks because fan? Because
1: he was so he was so brave. Okay. I just loved how brave he was. He did not have any fear. That that, that was a scary team. <laughs> he had no fear of them. But so I, I mean, mean I had such respect. Yeah, for that as such, I just loved it. I love and I loved how clutch he was. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, one, of the, and, one of the most clutch Rose, things, one of the most clutch things that ever happened on a one
0: of the most clutch things
1: that ever happened on a basketball court is what he did to the Knicks. Yeah, in that yeah. one game, incredible. I mean, <laughs> I, w- I was watching it live with my dad and my aunt, and my aunt saying like making fun of me because you know he was about to lose. I was, I really was a big fan. Of that. I even that was the only I root for the Knicks except when they played Reggie. Wow, because I I loved how he played. I just, just he was crazy, and they used to have Mark Jackson on that team who had been a Nick
0: too, you know. And, yeah. uh, and talking speaking of Brooklyn guys, and um, so so you're you're kind of like you're a kid. You've got you've got the artist parents. You've got the love of of sports, and you start playing. What did you
1: think was what was your dream? What was your dream as a kid? Um, I wanted to be a basketball player. There you go. That was, I wanted, I mean, that's until I saw Hope Dreams and then I realized I wasn't going to make it because they were better than me. And um, they didn't make it. And they didn't make it. Uh, and I didn't, it's not like that movie but, you know, not like I saw the movie and said, Oh, I'm going to make movies. It was more so like, you know, my, I think it was, I, I, I grew up loving movies, watching them with my mom. Mm. You know, that was like our activity, my only child. So I was very, am very close to both my parents and, um, mm. You know, my mom and I would just watch, rent movies and watch them all during the weekend. That was, like, our evening activity, you know? Sometimes watch two back-to-back. Back. Um, and she also, you know, she she wrote a play that my dad later produced, and they did that for years, and I worked backstage with them. Uh, that was, you know, my job. Um, and I was around it a lot. You know, they were both te- educators. They were both teachers. But, you know, they this was also something they pursued. And... Um, I think, you know, I didn't enjoy that when I was doing it. I wanted to be playing basketball. <laughs> but um <laughs> but, you know, it I think it just led to me kind of finding a a, a love of just writing short stories, you know. Um mm. I, that that all kind of happened around the same time. You working backstage at the play, discovering that I really liked writing short stories. Mm. Um and, you know, it just one thing led to another. Was basketball the thing that led you to poly prep? No.
0: no, oh, you no, said, no. what was it the, the, the thinking behind going there?
1: My, my parents were public school teachers and they were like, this is, this, this is not working. Um, hmm. and I took the test to get into Stuyvesant Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech, but they weren't crazy about Brooklyn Tech and I didn't get into Stuyvesant uh, Bronx Science was too far. So it was like, all right, they they were just like, we're gonna. My dad took on like three extra jobs. My mom took on an additional mm-hmm. extra job, and they just yeah. like worked crazy hard to send me to a private school in Brooklyn. And you know, they I I looked at Packer. I looked at another place I don't remember, maybe St. Ann's, and I looked at Poly Prep, and Poly Prep had ducks and turtles in a football field. (laughs) If people don't know, because there might
0: be some people listening right now don't really know Brooklyn that well, but like Bed-Stuy is all the way on one side and Poly Prep is all the way out by the Verrazano Bridge, but it looks like a college. I mean, it looks like a college campus and it's, yeah, it's, it's high-end kind of stuff and you got to be smart and you got to sacrifice. Your parents have to sacrifice to send you there. Um, But culturally it's a, Di- much different place than where you came from. Completely. Was that a culture shock going Definitely. That's cool. And that, <laughs> it had, had, that had, it, had that influence
1: maybe, you know, what, what came afterwards for you? Oh, man, in so many ways. Um, you know, it was a culture shock. So, you know, Bed Stuy at the time when I was growing up was a black neighborhood, not even predominantly, it was a black neighborhood. Like, yeah. there was one white person on my block who this, like, really unique cat. Uh, he was here, I think, from like the 80s. But that was the only white person I saw in Bed Stuy. Um, I don't even think I really remember seeing white people working in Bed Stuy. Um, and then Bay Ridge, where I went to high school, um, was predominantly, I'd say, like, Italian, Greek, um, Irish, I'd say, mm-hmm. Jewish. Um, working class working I mean, like work yeah. class yeah working class Bay Ridge is working class yeah but then you go to poly and it's like there's some kids who are there you know whose like parents like have have like good good jobs you know doctor dentist you know lawyer then there's some kids who's like parents own own like an oil company <laughs> you yeah. know or like own like you know, a thousand properties. You know what I mean. I think mean? like Bon Jovi's kids went there. Like, uh, yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, and I also think that the demographic has changed over the years. Because um, when I w- was there, you know, I think that by by and large, like the like white kids who were there, their parents were not. Uh, they weren't from America or their great or their grandparents didn't You know what I mean? Like it was like yeah. some kind of immigration going on, like Irish, like I said, Irish, Greek, Russian, Italian. Um, and I think that that's changed over the years. I think it's gotten like more like the sort of, uh, kind of Manhattan elite prep schools.
0: So to give you more of a broader sense of what was out in the world in going to poly prep, like, or did you feel like you still were kind of insulated and not? How did it affect your
1: worldview? It was weird because it was just like another small community in a way. You know what I mean? I didn't. I don't yeah. think my worldview really got expanded at Poly. I mean, maybe maybe more so than some of you know some of the kids I went I grew up with. You know, um, you know, I got to see. I mean, I guess my worldview grew in the sense of like I got to see like what wealth looked like. You know, and what just like, like, I got to understand what class looked like. And, you know, without even like getting a sort of real understanding of like the ways of race and class in America work, just by now being, you know, one of, you know, I don't know, like when I was in fifth grade, maybe one of four black kids in my year, which was a lot for that school. Hmm. A lot of class, you know, a lot of kids I knew had like, were one or two. Only one or two black kids in their in their class, um class like thirty, something like that um, so yeah I my worldview was expanded in that way i I would say, well, in fact, I know it was just because I know like I had experiences in junior high and high school that a lot of black kids I met in college didn't have until college, mm-hmm. and it really rattled them. And I was just like, this is just Tuesday, (laughs) like, you know, like, I mean, things I saw growing up were like crazy.
0: Your writing and stuff, did it, did you start to really, did it take off when you were in high school? Where did it, where do you feel like you started to really find your voice as a writer? High school. High school. High school, yeah. So that experience, then that propels you to NYU. Right. Well, I, I went to college. Vassar. I went to
1: Vassar. Yeah. Yeah. Vassar. So Vassar. And I started, first. I started making films at Vassar. Okay. And then that led you to NYU film school, correct? I, I saw. I started making films at Vassar, um, my junior year and, um, my senior year knew I wanted to do it mm-hmm. full time. Um, but I didn't know how you, you do that. So I signed up for a screenwriting course uh, after I graduated at this place called Frederick Douglass Creative Arts Center, uh, run by this guy named Fred Hudson. In fact, I don't know, Rada Blank, who wrote the four and directed and starred in the 40 year old version, she was in that class with me, mm-hmm. one of those classes. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, learned the basics of screenwriting, wrote some screenplays, um, was working as an educator, uh, like at after school programs, uh, you know, like teaching the theater workshops to high school kids here and there. Um, simultaneously, you know, I bought a Olex film camera, like taught myself how to use it. I was really stupid, but. Uh, <laughs> why, was, why was that cause stupid? Because it's just like no one uses it. No one was using it then. You know, okay. and it was so expensive. It was st- stupid. I should have just gotten, you know. It like was not as, good, not as good an investment as your as a a next six shop. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I shot one music video on it, um, and at some festivals and just was kind of like waiting, just like, okay, I've written screenplays. I've made a short after films, after grad school, I made it and I ended up making another short. It was just like, I, how do I get to the feature on stage? And I, you know, and, um, I remember I was at this thing called the IFP market that used to exist. Um, and they had, uh, like these screenwriting competitions that I was taking part in. And I met this guy, Seed Mann, who's a, you know, incredibly well-known director, really great director. Um, and he just like was winning all of them, like winning everything. And I went up to him. I was like, yo, how, apparently you really like know what, what you're doing. Like, how, where'd you learn how to do this? And he was like, I went to NYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, do would you, do you think it's a good investment? Like, do you think I should? you know, consider going there. It was like, yeah. And, uh, if you can, and so yeah. I, I, you know, applied and, and that's how I ended up there. Like seven years after I graduated, six years after I graduated from college.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, you would think you, you end up making your, know, your second feature film is an Academy Award nominated film. And people would think, wow, here's a guy who just stepped in it. You know, like all of a sudden you're just, you're so young and you get it. To, but it's like, you were like a, your overnight success story was like 20
1: years in the making. It's 20 years in the making. I, I looked at the other day, I was at, downstairs at my mom's, you know, and I was looking at this like award of mine. She had up for my first documentary I made and it was 20, 22 years ago. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, yes. I was doing that that long, you know. Who did you now? Did you was was Spike
0: Lee teaching at NYU Film School yes. then? Yeah. So did you, yeah. did you did you meet him at that time? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. He,
1: he was my teacher. He was your teacher. teacher. That was the first time you met him. First, time I met him was actually um, when I was applying. My friend okay. Randy Wilkins was teach was uh, one of his students there, who directed the J- Dirk Jeter documentary
0: yeah. on ESPN. The
1: captain. Um, he um, he introduced me to
0: Spike. Uh, did you bond about the Knicks when you first met him? There wasn't really any time <laughs> for that. <laughs> I, I would imagine. No for that. I would imagine that he was he was a great influence on you, being Definitely, a, a Brooklyn absolutely. guy, being your teacher. Um, yeah. What was that experience like of learning from him at NYU?
1: It's incredible. I mean, um, when the levees well, the sequel to when the levees broke was shooting. When it's, a, it's called "If God Is Willing, and the Creek Don't Rise," um, yeah. it was shooting my junior year and he allowed a number of us to go down there and work on that film with him. Oh wow. Um, during break and, you know, put us up in an amazing hotel. You know, I feel like we even had for DM, like he <laughs> he, like really, really treated us, you know, like film professionals. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and he, and he, he just, he also just his curriculum, like he was, he was really just generous with his knowledge. He would give you notes from films that he directed in the past that he, you know, Xeroxed. He, he just would give you, he would just give you real resources and, you know, um, he would always bring in guest lecturers, you know, Clive Owen, you know, John Singleton, um, to just like, you know, talk with us about the experience. And he would just interview them, like, tell them this, tell them about this, tell them about this. It's, a, it's an incredible class. It's one of the, it's such an amazing class that he teaches. I, I compared, I went to Fordham
0: and I learned play by play from Marty Clickman, who was a legendary sportscaster from Brooklyn, had an incredible story. And I remember kind of being like a guy that, you know, I was into communications and I, I, I loved sports. But it wasn't until I heard Marty talk about it, in a way that was very much like, "Here's the, here's the, here's the blueprint to how you do play by play," and then realizing that my skill set fit into that, and I'm like, "All right, I don't, I, I thought I knew what this is, now I don't. I, I break it all down, and I'm going to listen to this man." And I knew that that's what I was going to do, and I've made a thirty-year career in it. Um, it, did was that a similar experience with Spike, or you know, did did you think you knew what filmmaking was about? And then you get to NYU. Did it, did it change? I was just curious to see, like, what was kind of your moment where you said
1: you went I knew from nothing? I knew nothing yeah. when I went to NYU, relatively speaking. I, I knew absolutely nothing. I mean, yeah. I still, in my, honestly, I still go, I still go about this thing going, I know nothing. You know, I <laughs> you really have imposter syndrome right now. I like. don't, no, it's not even. I really don't. I really, there's so much, there's so much to learn. Yeah. Doing, making, there's so much to learn. I don't know anything, honestly. <laughs> I've learned, I, relatively speaking, I, I made two movies. You know, what I mean? you know, you know how, how nah. small an amount of films that is to have made, you know? I, yeah. Um, and,
0: and you set I the mean, bar
1: very high with your second spike, film. Spike, Spike. Spike makes like two movies. There was a time he was averaging two movies a year. Yeah. Very prolific. He's still, I mean, like, come on. So you feel like you're not
0: even, I might even do, we're not even in the same profession. I mean, this you know. But you're modest. You you have modesty. You've obviously, you've done it. Like, so I guess, I mean, was that your ultimate goal to get where you were there, you know, however many years later doing a
1: film like, like Judas and the Black Messiah? Yeah, I mean, that was the goal of, of, of that film. You know, every goal, every film, rather, is a different experience. It's a different, yeah. you know, you show up a different person when you make it. You have the, because making films, you know, for me, at least, um, takes some time, you know, at first, first of all, it takes some time to decide whether you want to go through with all of that, right? And yeah. commit to it. Um, and, you know, it's just a several year long process. And during that time, like other things happen in your life that affect the art and, you know, the art affects those things. Sure. And, you know, you, you like I said, you just, it's it's so intimate, at least I think for me, like, I think it's different when you get hired to direct something. But when you just, when you're the one who's like, hey, I want to make this thing. And then you like start seeing it, and you start trying to help people, you, you know, find the people that will help you make it. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it takes a long time and it's so magical, honestly. It's, yeah. it's so, it's something that is really like, you know, probably like farming, you know, or, or growing <laughs> things out of the ground. I mean, it really is like a, it's organic. It's, it's, it's just I can't you know I, I'm I'm, ha- I'm struggling to find the words for it so that it like it changes you and the thing changes and you know uh, I I'm now, almost do, like forgot the question I apologize. Do you have
0: interest in 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 doing in directing other people's screenplays or, or are you sort of just the kind of artist that I I want to write it and direct it and create
1: it from the ground up? I think. Um, even if, I, if I, I can't imagine getting a screenplay that just I wanted to make, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I feel like I would have to get in there and, you know, the first step for me is putting words on the page. Um, and so eventually I think I would end up go getting in there and changing the words that were already on the page to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'm opposed to necessarily developing a screenplay based off of existing source material, whether that be a book or, you know, play, that that I think is a good jumping off point because one of the reasons I like collaborating (laughs) with other writers is because I like to have some words on the page that I can then kind of reshape and tear down and rebuild and, Mm. you know, there's it's nothing more daunting than a blank page. (laughs) You know, like I'd rather have something on the page that I can then fiddle with.
0: They would say you should just kind of like, there really shouldn't be writer's block. You should just keep, you should just put things on the page, even if they don't make sense. Exactly. And then then you can change
1: it, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's true. Like, I just am such a, I kind of have to see things. I have to see one thing, one door closed before I open another door in terms of how I write. Yeah, so that I can't just put any bullshit on the page. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, like it I just guess. doesn't work. That I can, but sometimes can, like
0: the the process of getting in motion kind of
1: stirs you. Oh, I, I know, but yeah. I need someone else to put bullshit on the page, <laughs> and then I can, I can, you know, I can go to work.
0: While we while we're going, we're we're kind of hooking into the this path. I it was this was something that that I thought about. And um, knowing I was going to talk to you, I wanted to rewatch uh judas and the black messiah again i love the film i saw when it came out and i want to rewatch it and there was something and i'm going to nerd out now on on movie making hopefully people are interested in this but it goes to what you talk about being the writer and the director and i'm curious to to see the connection so when we first see bill o'neill in in the film right he's the judas character um He's in that that pool room and you know, I don't I don't want to give anything if people haven't seen it, but um, he gets head butted, right? And then he he opens up a wound, obviously. And then you go next scene he's in the car. I notice there's some drops of blood, and you see some blood on his on his sleeve, you see it on the, I think the gear shift. And then when he's being interrogated, right, the next scene he's being interrogated in the FBI and the the wound is just staring at you. And I'm going, you know, even my mind I'm going, yeah, like can't we just get a Can't a guy give him a towel? Can't we clean that up? No, but the wound, throughout the whole conversation, the wound is just, it's an open wound that's staring at with that blood dripping. And now you cut to the next scene and he's got, you, you identify the character now in the room, the classroom there with the Black Panthers because he's got a bandage over the eye. And then the next scene, he's giving out flyers on the street and the wound is healed. So that, That whole thing took you through, it's maybe, I don't know, a couple of minutes, but it kind of brings you through the whole timeline and and accentuates how long now he has gone from this whole, the character in that situation. Is that something that's on the page like that? Or is that something as a director you do? Or is that something because you're married as the writer and the director, you put that technique all together?
1: That's a great question. Um, and I'm trying to remember if it started on the page or if it ended. I mean, I think that it was definitely later that we kind of came to. So, f- to start with, one thing that's funny is that you thought that the headbutt is the reason he has the wound. Or it but the knife always, coming through the top? No, no, his was really funny. We always made that wound heavy because. We wanted it to seem like when he got interrogated, the po- the cops beat the shit out of him.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I could see, I could see that too, and and that and that's a lot of the theme of the film.
1: But it was one of those things that happens completely off screen. It's completely off screen, but it's like in in my mind, I go, oh, well, you know, they they beat him up, and so he's he's really beaten. And then the FBI comes in, and they don't beat it. They're not. You know, he's he's interacting with them in a way that's different in his mind than the cops who just treated him a certain way. And I got that from the interview with O'Neill, with the real O'Neill from Eyes on the Prize, where he talks a little bit about his experience in his mind with how he interacted with the, you know, Chicago PD versus how he first interacted with Agent Mitchell, which is how he got seduced by yes, action. so so the, the, he know. was he
0: was roughly treated by the the, yeah. the cops, yeah. but the FBI was kind of like it. He felt now like they were they were. Well, he just he just it wasn't
1: even that he said it wasn't even so much that he said he was roughly treated by the cops, but the way that he talked about the police growing up as a kid was different from the way that he felt like how Agent Mitchell treated him specifically. Mm. Um, and I thought that that was something that that was something that informed just how we meet. Mitchell and the place that O'Neill is at emotionally when he meets Mitchell, yeah, um, and how we, you know, shot their interaction, et cetera. But yeah. anyway, to answer your initial question, um, I can't tell you if that was on the page. Probably not to the degree that that we, you know, we carried that for a bit, right? Like when he's handing out papers, that's like it's like you, you just you just gave the journey of the wound, right? And I yeah. think that that was probably something more so that myself my production design as we start building that sequence, probably we're like, oh, and then we can do this and you know that's why I love too. like so much now is um you know,
0: streaming and and shows have become uh seasons long. I still love a good movie that tells a story in two two and a half hours, and you have to use those techniques to show time passing and yeah. yet at the same time um, show how the roots are are starting to sprout and it, you you take a minute to do it rather than an hour long uh episode to yeah. do it. Yeah. Are you are you looking to do um another film or yeah. would you do other series? What do you have uh kind of cooking right now?
1: Right right now I'm producing some TV um for FX primarily. That's where uh myself and my partner Brandon Harris have our first look, but um but I I I'm gearing up to make another movie. I'm working Mm -hmm. on another movie. Um, That's, that's, you know, that's the next thing I'm going to
0: do. You know, I had this other question now and I want to go back to Judas for a second. How did you want the audience to perceive the character of Bill O'Neill who plays the, you know, the movie is obviously about Fred and it's about the, you know, it has that aspect of the Black Panthers, but I really still feel at the heart it was about Bill O'Neill and his journey. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Did, how did you want the the, the audience to
1: perceive him? Um, with complexity, ultimately, you know. Um, you know, to me, the movie, his character, and the reason we structured his character that we would deal with because we wanted to show kind of the dangers of. Um, really like being completely apolitical. Um, and, you know, I think that, I don't want to say amoral, because I don't think that those are the same thing. But I do think that, you know, it can be a really slippery slope if you don't kind of have some sort of ground rules for yourself. You know, just something that you believe in, principles. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I I think when you don't have any, when you're only, you know, when you're only motivated by, and it's tricky, right? Because, you know, that's the thing that I think a TV series can do a better job of than a movie is contextualizing, you know, I think we did an okay job, you know, I think we would have needed more time to, Mm -hmm. and, and we, you know. I, I wish I could have made a three-hour movie. <laughs> but, you <laughs> know, I wasn't at allowed the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. Um, but uh, I think a little bit of context as to how in the division, you know, what social circumstances could lead to somebody kind of, you know, when they're asked, like, you know, how do you feel about Malcolm X's assassination? To give yeah. an answer, like, you know, didn't really, didn't really bother me. Like why, how, how, how a young black man in 1968 could come to that conclusion? When, cause, cause I, mean, I think that that's a unique individual, right? Yeah. Like you gotta have gone through certain things in your life for you to have that. Cause everybody loved Malcolm.
0: I don't, you know? I almost <laughs> took it when I'm watching movies that he didn't know how to, cause it's because of where the
1: question was coming from. He didn't really know if he could give a real answer yeah but that's what but that's why he that's what it, that's the thing i like you know everyone reads the scene differently but that's why mitchell says no you could you could be honest yeah you know? no yeah, he, like- no it's not even knock him back no i'm sorry the first one he asks is martin martin a kid. And, yeah. and he says martin and he says i and he says you know i don't know he lies you know and then mitchell goes you can be honest and he says okay like yeah. And then Malcolm X, he generally, he, he's now been disarmed, right? Like, the guy's like, you can tell the truth. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I was a little upset. So then when he gets asked about Malcolm, like, then it's like, you know, you could be honest. And he's being honest when he says, like, I don't I really give a shit. shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, I didn't even think about it. You know, I didn't really, I didn't really consider I, it. <laughs> I should
0: put it out. That was Lakeith Stanfield, the actor who played uh, Bill O'Neill in the movie, who was nominated as well. I mean, because... Daniel uh, Kaluuya, he won, he won, he ends up winning the Oscar. And I think uh, Lakeith well, he was, he was, and then it was, um, Lakeith was also nominated, right, yeah. for that? Yeah, yeah. How about, I thought their, their, both their performances were outstanding. How did you, what is that like for a director? How is your relationship with an actor? And then seeing two of your actors get nominated Along with you for the Academy Award, is it like you've kind of like do you do you share in that? Because is there is that the relationship between an actor and a director? Is it so close, or does it depend on the actor as to how closely he wants you involved in his performance?
1: Uh, I mean, on the, I can only speak to this movie. Yeah, and my experiences with you know, not, you know, my first movie, which is like it's super tied to like at the hip you know like sure the two of you you know and a lot of other people (laughs) but but the two of you you know early on just were trying to like envision what this thing might look like you know and by the time you've gone through the process of putting that thing on its feet refining it in the edit screening it, seeing how people react to it, and then people really connect to it. You know, it's like, it's like, um, I always think of directing as like, you know, it's, there's a, is a point guard, you know, to use a sports metaphor, I think there's a point guard aspect of it that I think everyone can kind of understand and sort of.
0: More so um, than a more so than like a coach and a player they think you feel coach, like it's a they point think guard. No, that's what yeah. I think.
1: People will say po- coach. I think people will say point guard. But I think that for me, it's also GM hmm. because so much of directing for me is casting hmm. and finding the right. I mean, that's like that is really, really so undersold as like such a major part of, and not just casting your your actors, but like your collab, your other collaborators that tech, building that team is such a big part of directing and you know you pick the right person
0: it it's every, it means it's everything did you watch uh the movie the, the show the offer on paramount the one about uh, the making of the godfather no i didn't watch it i didn't see it it it's it's fascinating to see the the battles that francis ford coppola and and uh Ruddy, the producer went through to try and make sure that they had the actors, the the DP, like everybody that that the, the studio wanted this guy or that guy, and they just had to stick to their beliefs and fight and make little trade offs, but at the same time, you know, keep because you know Francis Ford Coppola just felt like he was we'll right. See- we can't do this movie right. without Al Pacino, and Al Pacino is some <laughs> unknown guy, know. you know. And he, and he was completely right, right? You got to trust yeah. that vision, like you yeah. said, of uh, you know Sean Mark's vision, you know. Yeah. And that's ownership's got to go. All right, Sean, we trust you to go out and do your thing, and yeah. here's the here's the list uh, kinda, yeah. that kind of that you want to do. Definitely,
1: uh, it's everything.
0: Yeah. Did uh you mentioned you're doing some other stuff? It the and and your other like your influence. You talked about Spike Lee. Who are some of the other people that you that you have have been influenced
1: in your career? Sidney Lumet, Sidney Lumet, Martin Scorsese, Park Chan Wook, Bong joon Ho. You mentioned Sidney uh-huh. Lumet right away.
0: Mm-hmm. What is it about Sidney Lumet that draws you to his films?
1: I just love he has a lot of movies I love. They just enjoy, I just enjoy. Um What's your I think favorite? that he, man It's so tough. I, I don't know if I can pick one. You know, Network is pretty up there. Um but you know, so is Serpico. Um Dog Day Afternoon. Sydney, Dog Day Afternoon is is course you know
0: yeah which is um, right over and uh i i drive by there all the time going to the arena over uh i think it's like 17th avenue over there like by it used to be old bishop Ford high school was over there it was right across the the uh the parkway where they did that right on the corner i didn't
1: realize that you didn't realize that I yeah that's that. where they
0: that's where they did it that whole outdoor outside the bank and mm-hmm, attica mm-hmm, and attica
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: yeah mm-hmm. So you're yeah. drawn to like, you're drawn to like New York stories too?
1: I love a lot. I mean, that's like, I love, I love old New York movies. Mm. You know, King of New York is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, you know, I mean, I, I love old New York movies in general. I like, I like, I like lot of old gangster movies. You know, when you say old, crime old movies, old yeah. crime movies, old crime. I love, I love, you know, pulpy, just, like, scrappy, that stuff is fun to me. Yeah. Um But I think, for me, influences should change project to project. And, like, you know, the, the new thing I'm working on, I'm finding just the weirdest sort of new influences and things that I've, you know, genres that I wasn't necessarily interested in that I'm now you know, finding myself drawn to. So I think it just, hopefully it keeps, you know, growing and shifting. Yeah. I I look for as a, you know, I I was telling
0: you about that scene before that I love from, from Judas. And I'm, you know, as a play by play guy, I'm drawn to very, you know, I'm like a, I find, I, I pride myself in really looking at details, you know, because as a play by play guy, you're constantly describing things. And in my business, there's a lot of times where guys have signature calls, you know, uh, John Sterling, it is high, it is far, you know, or, or Breen with bang and, you know, they're all great. And, and people are just like, what's your signature? I got, I don't know. I'm kind of more of like the game is the thing for me. And I just want to sort of be the guy that describes the game to you. I know like we've brought up Spike, like there's certain things that Spike does in a movie where no one else does. And you look at it and you know, immediately, this is a Spike movie, you know, Scorsese does a lot of the same things. Do you have a view of like putting signatures in your film or what's your, what's your view of that? You're kind of like what I was talking about. Kind of just, I I want to be in the background. Yeah. 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 Um, But do you mind it when it's in there? No. From directors? Not at all. Yeah. That's their vision, right? That's kind of the way
1: they want to present the material to you. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it's like perfect and sometimes You know, you're like, that's, it just is the thing. It's it's their signature. Their style. It depends. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes Uh, it's like, oh, this is, the you know, this transcends just you, the way that you do it. It's, it's, it's become something else. And I guess the style would
0: just sort of your style. And you've only done two full length feature films. Your style will sort of come out. Maybe you're not even trying to do It, it. I think it,
1: I think it should change movie to movie.
0: Yeah. Will you Definitely. always kind of follow the path of like your next project is it along the same the the ideas you're trying to present to the world? Is there always going to be a common theme to it you think Not or, this or one. are
1: <laughs> stories just going to go from <laughs> this from story is stories totally, different different? It's totally unlike anything I've done. We're
0: not going to break any news here, right? You can't, you no. can't give us a little. I'm <laughs> not going to tell you anything other than.
1: Other I can't than wait for it. It's totally then. unlike anything I've ever
0: done. I'm really excited about it then. Me too. Um, Me too. I, I want to be, I want to be, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time here. I really appreciate you taking as much time as you have. Um, I, I want to re- bring it back a little bit to you personally and, and maybe Brooklyn as well. What is it that you, you, you've remained in Brooklyn? Um, you say you've liked how Barclays kind of represents, you know, the Brooklyn, you know, maybe more than you thought it was going to. Um, what is it that you still love about
1: Brooklyn today? Hmm. I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of put into words. It's just, it's my home, you know, like, I mean. It, it, but you're not looking to go to live in Hollywood, right? I mean, no, are you? No, 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 <laughs> no, not at all. I, I mean, I live in. I live with my family here, like, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I could do LA January to March easy. <laughs> <laughs> easy. I used to do it a lot. Like, I haven't done it in a long time because I, I have like family duties here, but, um, yeah, I got to admit, like, I get on the road with the Nets sometimes,
0: like, in the middle of winter. Like, I was just in Miami last weekend, and it's like, wow, I could, yeah, this is a nice little, I don't want to live here, but this is, like, kind of, I could, I it like standing <laughs> out there with the sunlight hitting me for a couple hours.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's raining in LA like crazy right now, and that lets me know that in March it's going to be green, and it's going to be just beautiful. lush and beautiful, you know?
0: What's your it's favorite, just, besides going to, going to games at Barclays Center, <laughs> what's the favorite kind of... Act, downtime activity you like in Brooklyn? Is there a place you like to
1: hang out, a place you like to visit? I stay at home most, so much, man. Are you? Yeah, I'm a homebody, man. I am, um, honestly, like I just go get a cup of coffee and walk around the neighborhood, like, you know, go for a drive. Like, I'm really just not really right. out there like that, unfortunately.
0: Well, yeah. but that's something that you could do in Brooklyn that you can't do in LA. Like, you can go for a ride, but sometimes you, yeah, take you a can't walk. Yeah, you can't take a walk. No, you can't yeah. take a walk.
1: Brooklyn is. You know, it's, it's my favorite place to walk, yeah, you know, outside of the woods. You know, <laughs> do you get out in the woods a, a much? I try to. I
0: Where try do you get, get upstate or something. Get upstate, yeah, yeah. just get an Airbnb for a couple of days. That's what out, I love about New York too is that you can escape within a couple of hours in either direction. Definitely. If you get to the beach, the woods, you know, you have
1: it all. Yeah, right here it's it's funny because I didn't recognize how. We had it until I went to LA and I did in LA because it was like, you know, I don't, I don't even know why. I, tri- I think because it's like not two hours, it's one hour yeah, away from the beach and one hour away from the woods, <clears throat> you know, depending on where you are. But, um, but I was like, Hey, it's only another hour to get upstate. I was like, why am I not taking advantage of going upstate more often? And I started doing it and it changed my life. Yeah, really, in, in what way Open you up creatively? Uh, every way. It's just you know, a re, a, a, a re, I can reset out there, like really reset. Yeah, quickly.
0: Um, like I said, I'm a movie guy. I'm gonna a couple of things. I want to wrap up. I'm gonna steal from another podcast. I love this uh, podcast. You know, you know uh, the show Ted Lasso. Yeah. Um, Brett Goldstein, you know, he's the, uh, the guy who plays, uh, Roy Kent and he's a comedian and he's one of the writers and the showrunners. He's got a podcast called films to be buried with. And he, uh, he interviews people, a lot of Londoners and he will just tries to tell their story through the films that they love and things like that. So I'm going to, I'm going to outright steal a few of his questions just to get to know a little bit about you through the movies you love. What was the first movie you remember seeing?
1: I want to say E.T. E.T. I think it's E.T. I think it's E.T. Or Bambi. It's E.T. or Bambi. One of the two.
0: What's the movie that you think has meant the most to you in your life? Hmm. Whew. Wow. <laughs> Take as much time because...
1: Malcolm X, probably.
0: Denzel Washington.
1: Yeah. I think that movie's probably meant the most to me.
0: I don't know if I've ever remember, and I mean, there have been a few examples, but a character who embodied the role where you thought it was him than he did in that movie.
1: What's amazing about that performance is that it, it, it's, it's kind of, I remember, I think I was talking to Daniel about this when we were working on, it was Daniel, who we were developing how he was going to approach playing Chairman Fred. And I think he broke down sort of two types of like amazing acting that when it comes to biopics. And he, he used Denzel and Malcolm X and Jamie Foxx and Ray. And Denzel is channeling and Jamie Foxx is, is uh what's the word? Um imitating. Imitating, yeah. And they're both insanely amazing performances. And I mean, maybe Jamie's also channeling too, Yeah, you know, like, cause he went to a space that's crazy, but we decided that he was going to, that Daniel was going to, you know, go the Denzel route. Channel. Yeah. She was going to channel because he doesn't, you know, Denzel doesn't look like Malcolm in that movie. He doesn't sound like Malcolm in that movie, but he's Malcolm. (laughs) He is Malcolm fully. He's, He's him. He's him. <laughs> like he's channeling.
0: Yeah. Uh, him. And yeah, it's absolutely. Insane. And Jamie's such a great mimic, though, because he does impressions
1: exactly. of so many people. Exactly. Jamie yeah. can do that with anybody. He just did it like to the to another level with Ray. Yeah. That was
0: like. Did you see the the Elvis the new one? I started and finished and it, and it's like I feel like now it's like that guy is I couldn't I can't know if he's doing an Elvis impersonation or he's becoming Elvis. You <laughs> see him; he just won the Golden Globe last night as we speak, and he sounded like Elvis on the stage giving out the <laughs> award. Um, or even like you said, did you? I don't know you had Tom Hanks in uh, when he played Mister Rogers. I didn't, didn't, see nec- that one. didn't necessarily look like him, or but, but he kind of just like he. There's an essence yeah. there about yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the movie you've watched the most? Like, you've Good rewatched Goodfellas, really? Yeah, Goodfellas. That came out the same year as Godfather 3. And I feel like it and changed... And The Untouchables. And The Untouchables. Wow. But it, it seemed yeah. like it changed the, the genre.
1: It did. Like, yeah. it's, it definitely did. I mean, it's, uh, it changed a lot of things, man. So many movies are influenced by Goodfellas that aren't even gangster, you know. Just the way that that voiceover plays, the pace, the fun, the mm. fun. It's the most fun crime movie I've ever seen. And one of the most fun movies ever. Quotable. It's so fun. But also terrifying. In a fun way. Even the th- That's the thing about that movie that's crazy, is that even the, the like, terrifying parts of the violence it's still so fun. You're never, you You know, like Bray Liotta has a reaction in that movie that he laughs so much in that movie at depravity. <laughs> he laughs. His reaction at depravity is to laugh. And he has that. And his laugh is amazing in that film. Yeah. And that's how I feel watching that, that movie, and that's how I almost wonder if if that if that because he is your way in, right? Yeah. I almost wonder if like that's part of the reason why it's such a fun movie because he's, you know, he's, he's laughing constantly, just cracking up, and then at the end it gets insane. But he, <laughs> I, but I, I also
0: feel like you're talking about he's the entry, right? He's the entryway into that movie, but he's also the almost the most self aware person. Like he, he's recognizing some of these things are ridiculous and scary and funny but like the other characters are kind of like that's just they don't care that's just who they are even because the one you talk about remember that they're sitting around the poker table and they're gonna they're gonna whack uh mori like de niro's gonna whack mori that night and mm-hmm. and and, and Ryota, probably the, the hardest he laughs the whole night is when they're sitting there and he got that ah, ha, ha. and then all of a sudden you know de niro turns to him and goes yeah forget that thing forget about that thing today and he was relieved but he so it's like you know he's he's your 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 mirror in the whole movie you
1: know he's the, i think he's the only person who ever has like sympathy for people dying or catching you know yeah. bullets that you know they don't necessarily deserve it also was his he's story that,
0: yeah. it's his story yeah know? like he wrote it everyone so he, else
1: is like yeah like the guy died it doesn't matter like yeah. you know Jimmy Conway's a sociopath. Jimmy Conway's like a calm sociopath, you know? Yeah. Joe Pesci's character is like the, a full-on psychopath. Premier, yeah, and Ray Liotta's yeah. just like, also, a, a sociopath. sociopath. Yeah, but can tell <laughs> like, the difference. But, yeah? he, but he can tell the difference. You know?
0: uh, what do you think objectively uh, is the greatest movie ever made? I don't know that, you know, you say this everything you from have a technical a, standpoint, actor. What do you think is the greatest? I don't know if story? you can say objectively. Well, um, in other words, you may not have even loved the movie as much as everybody else, but you think, yeah, you know what? That really is like the best. If
1: people movie. say The Godfather one and two, I could take that. If people say Apocalypse Now, mm. I could see that, you know. Um, Apocalypse Now is crazy. Man. That movie's, I love that movie not still. How did you do this? Like
0: that's another one that changed the genre yeah. of war. Moves. Oh my gosh, it's crazy!
1: I mean, it's, it's just, I just, you know, I feel that way about Ap- Apocalypto too, man. Apocalypto is a movie I saw later in life, and I just was like, how did you do this? <laughs> you know? Um. Yeah, I mean it, right. but I, I, I think I want, it's hard to say.
0: I don't want to keep to you too much longer. I just couple one thing at the end of every sure. episode, I wrap this up by saying. Um, you remember the Jimmy B speech at the SB's, never give up, I don't know if you mm-hmm, remember it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, it's always meant something important to me in my life. Um, you know, I, I live with a disability and it's just something that when that, that speech just really has been in, in, in integral to me. But he said to have a full life, you need to do three things every day. Laugh, cry, and think. So I always ask everybody that comes on the podcast, Shaka King, what makes you laugh besides good <laughs> It could be, you know, a person, a situation, a friend. Who can get you to laugh? Um, my, my, my best friend, Kev. Yeah. The funny guy. Yeah. Knows he, you. A guaranteed laugh. Um, I can cry at a good car commercial. What about you? Are you a crier? Um, um,
1: someone i love when they're in pain
0: Mm. yeah and finally the the oculus outside barclay center that you know ribbon board there it's everybody can see it when they come up through the subway when they come into barclay center if you could put something up there and you're a filmmaker so you've given people things to think about but if there's just something you could put up there that you want everybody that walks through those doors to see and think about what do you think it would be Oh, I don't
1: know. <laughs> Terrible questions like this. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Is there is there Terrible. is there something
0: that maybe uh, Spike told you as a filmmaker, like that you have in your mind all the time? Me, it was Marty Glickman. Always said, consider the listener. Mm-hmm. To me, that's mm-hmm. always whenever I do a broadcast or a podcast or something, I'm like, I'm thinking about that person listening, saying, you know, what do they need? What do they want right now? What could
1: I give um, them? I mean, I think for me, the thing is like, just never get to, just. I think recognize your place in the thing that you make and how little you have to do with it.
0: Hmm. That there's, there's a lot left
1: up to chance. I mean, or, so much of it, you know, you have something to do with it. You have a lot to do with it. You also have absolutely nothing to do with it, down to the idea coming to you. I love that. You know, none of that is yours.
0: Shaka King, Oscar-nominated director... One of the barclay center uh 10 creators celebrating 10 years at uh brooklyn uh shock i really enjoyed talking to you i hope i didn't keep you too long Likewise. thank you so no, much it was man. great talking to you chris shaka king is uh his second full-length feature film ends up being nominated for an academy award really excited to see what's coming up next from shaka king uh, on the way out here i mean obviously Judas and the Black Messiah, if you haven't seen it, that's my viewing recommendation for you. Outstanding film. Something to listen to. Song of the episode, as we leave you here, goes back to what I talked about in the beginning of this podcast, and in my career, and fulfilling your dreams. One of the best live music events I ever attended was the See Here Now Festival, in Asbury Park, on the beach, got to see my beloved Pearl Jam. But before Pearl Jam hit the stage, it was this awesome moment. It was twilight, the sun was setting, on the beach, concluding it was just a beautiful day. Pearl Jam's coming up at night, and the Abbott brothers played, and they were terrific. I wasn't sure what to think of them in a festival setting, but they were great. And there's a song by the Abbott brothers called Head Full of Doubt that I've always loved. It's a triumphant song. If you're loved by someone, you're never rejected. So decide what to be and go be it. My thanks to my producer, Tom Dowd, engineer Isaac Lee. Thanks to Shaka King. Talk to you next time. I'm Chris Carino, right here on The Voice of the Nets.